I wonder if you ever overlooked the significance of something. It makes me think back to uh, Only Fools and Horses. I don't know if you used to watch that programme. Uh, but all the way through, Del Boy was trying to become a millionaire. And it turns out in one of the Christmas specials, I actually had uh, a watch, a pocket watch in his garage uh, that was actually worth millions. Actually had it there all along, but it's overlooked uh, his, the significance of what he got there. Or perhaps it was that first meeting with your, your spouse or your best friend. You didn't realise at the time that it was going to be so significant. But looking back now, you can see the significance of what was happening. Well, Abraham is easily overlooked. He's one of dozens of characters in Genesis. He's one of hundreds in the Bible. But I want to say that no man really is talked about like him from the Old Testament, apart from maybe David or Moses. He's mentioned a whopping 72 times in the New Testament. Even David only gets 50 Moses gets 80, but Moses includes any very mention of uh, the first five books of the Bible. Three major world religions count him as their father. Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. That means 3.8 billion people in the world hold this man as being the, the founder of their faith, if you like. That's over half the world's population. He's far too significant to treat as a one-dimensional character. You know, Abraham did this and it was right to do that. Abraham didn't do this and it was wrong, or did this and it was wrong, don't do that. And we're not going to do that this morning. But we're going to see the significance of this man and what happened to him that makes him so uh, significant in the Bible. And for that we need to know where we are in the Bible storyline. So what is the story uh, so far? The story so far. Well, we started off last week, didn't we? We saw the pattern of the kingdom, we saw uh, Adam and Eve. Uh, in the Garden of Eden, and we saw a pattern established, didn't we? God's people, in God's place, enjoying God's rule and blessing. But we saw, didn't we, that people rebelled. So actually, they, they turned away from God. They were no longer his people. They were cast out of Eden, no longer in his place. And they disobeyed his word, uh, and were cast out, uh, and forced to go out of the Garden. But there is grace here. We didn't pick up on it so much last week, but... At the end of the story, God clothes Adam and Eve. Even they tried to clothe themselves with fig leaves and, and haven't really managed it. But God gives them clothes to wear. There's grace, even in this story. There's the promise of the serpent crusher, who would come and reverse the curse. So there is grace, even in this great story of rebellion. Well, after that comes Cain and Abel. Uh, we looked at them on Sunday night. Abel seems to show more promise than Cain, but Cain kills him. And humanity descends further as man begins to act like the very beast he's supposed to rule. But again, we see grace as God protects Cain. He puts a mark on him so that people won't kill him. And then we come to the flood. God despairs of making humanity and sends a global flood to wipe the earth clean. <clears throat> and again, we see a bit of grace, don't we, as God rescues one family, Noah and his family. Noah's name means rest. Are we going to enter God's promised rest? Is this going to be the one who will restart at all? Well, it seems to be a good start, a new start. God repeats many of the things that he said to Adam and Eve, uh, to Noah. But then Noah, like his forefather, Adam, can't do it. We see that in two ways, really. The first is that he gets drunk uh, and ends up cursing his son Ham and his grandson Canaan, which again is interesting if you think about where we're going. This was written by Moses to the Israelites in the wilderness. He fails. Noah's not the serpent crusher. He can't take us back to the garden. And then we get the Tower of Babel. 
That's the second way we see that mankind still messes up after the flood. Noah's, Noah's descendants actually set about trying to dethrone God again and to make a name for themselves. While well, God, in punishment, confuses their languages and scatters them across the earth. But the interesting thing with this is that unlike other incidents, there's no sign of grace. There's no little twist at the end to show you uh, the kindness of God. For that, really, we have to go into Genesis 12. And in Genesis 12, we see the kingdom strikes back. The kingdom strikes back. I'll read it to you again, Genesis 1 to 3, uh, 12, 1 to 3. Now the Lord said to Abraham, or Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonours you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. What we see here is that God steps into the picture. God steps in not for judgment, but for blessing. In all the other cases, God's really come in for judgment. But here we see God stepping in for blessing. And we don't really see that Abraham is seeking God, but it more seems that God is seeking Abraham. He calls him to go from his home in Ur, which is in modern day Iraq. Well, actually, he's actually some of the way along probably by this point. Uh, and he's in Haran in Turkey. Uh, not time to go into detail with that now, but if you want to know, put it on a blue slip. Um, but he calls him to go into this land that he will show him. He doesn't even tell him at this point which land he's going to take him into. He just says, go into the land that I will show you. When he's called, he's 75 years old. That's not a spring chicken. Now, we know that ages were a little bit different back then. The people lived a bit longer. Um, but he's still not a young man, is he? Uh, he's certainly an OAP by our standards. And yet, off he goes. <coughs> Uproots, even at that old age. And goes to where God shows him. But Abraham's not chosen because he goes or because of his goodness. Actually, we see in Abraham a warts and all account, really, uh, of his life. He deceives people about the identity of his wife on several occasions, almost seeming to give them over to another man. He sleeps with his wife, maid to bear children. Now, he does do that with his wife's permission, and there are all sorts of different cultural norms, but it's still not to be commended. And the Bible makes it very clear that it was not a good decision. God chooses an imperfect man. And we see that really clearly as we look at Abraham's life. But he chooses him to be the, begin the turning of the tides. To be the fulcrum of history so far. Some have argued that really you can divide the Bible in two. Really, or certainly the Old Testament in two. Before Abraham and after Abraham. So significant was this man. But he's not significant because of the man that he is but because of the promises that God made him. This is what John Stott wrote about those promises. He said, It may truly be said, without exaggeration, that not only the rest of the Old Testament, but the rest of the New Testament are an outworking of these promises of God. I'll read that again. It may be truly said, without exaggeration, that not only the rest of the Old Testament, but the rest of the, the whole of the New Testament are an outworking of these promises of God, referring to the ones that he made to Abraham. So it would be no exaggeration to say that you can't really understand the rest of the Bible properly and fully without getting your head around these promises. But what are we? We're going to spend the bulk of our time uh, in, this, uh, in this section. Uh, the promises themselves. 
promises themselves. We've met these promises before that we're going to look at. We've met them in a different form. We met them in the pattern of the kingdom. So if you remember, uh, we had Adam and Eve uh, uh, in, in the garden. We had, uh, sorry, <laughs> what we saw was we saw them in the pattern of the kingdom. Got a people, a place and a blessing. And these are the things that are promised to Abraham. Really what God is promising Abraham here is God's people in God's place enjoying his rule and blessing. Because the content of the promises are those three things. People, land, uh, rule and blessing. So really what God is promising Abraham by doing this is he's promising him the kingdom of God. That's what we said this was last week. God's people in God's place enjoying his rule and blessing. God is promising a reversal of the curse. He's promising a return to Eden by giving Abraham these promises. He promises a great people to a man who has no children at this point, who's 75 years old. He promises a land to a human race in exile outside of Eden, with no place wandering on the earth. He promises blessing for a cursed world. So let's look at those in a bit more detail. God's people, we see, are Abraham's descendants. Uh, we see that there uh, in Genesis 12. Um, so, Genesis 12, uh, verse 1. Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and your name will be great. He's promising to make him into a great nation. He's promising him many descendants. Now, the words that's used for descendants all the way through Genesis is the word seed. And it's a bit like our word sheep. Uh, so uh, I know David Harrison is the, the expert at this, this sort of thing, but uh, you can have one sheep, and it's a sheep. And if you have two sheep, it's sheep. Uh, it's the same with this word. That, that's, about my, that's about the extent of my knowledge of sheep. Uh, but um, that word seed there is like that. One seed, two seed as well. It can mean lots of people, or it can just mean one. That's not going to be so significant now, but it might come up again uh, in a few weeks' time. But we're going to take it for the moment of, of seed, descendants. Um, and Abraham is promised this great nation. So if you turn to Genesis 15, verses 1 to 6, just a few pages on, you see that the same promise is repeated in more detail. Genesis 15, verses 1 to 6. We see here more details about this great nation, this great people. So Genesis 15, 1 to 6. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. Fear not, Abraham, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abraham said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abraham said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very, very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look upwards to the heavens and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring, that's the word seed, be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. We see there, don't we, this, this idea of this great number of people, as numerous as the stars in the sky. This nation's not going to be Andorra or Liechtenstein, if you like. It's not going to be one of those tiny ones. Uh, that you sort of struggle to see on a world map. This nation is going to be huge. It's going to be massive. And it's going to be through his own son. It's not going to be sort of given by uh, going through this other person who might have been his heir. 
It's going to be his own son. So God is going to bring this about. And kings and nations will come from this uh, uh, nation itself, this people uh, that God is giving. So have a look at Genesis 17, just another couple pages over. Again, God repeats the promises and goes into more detail. So from verse 1. When Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abraham and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, that I may make a covenant between me and you, and may multiply you greatly. Then Abraham fell on his face and said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be Abraham, but you shall be called, uh, you shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you, and your offspring after you, throughout all their, throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant, to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. This promise is huge. God is, is promising so much that he even changes Abraham's name to Abraham. Abraham means exalted father. That must have been really difficult for Abraham to have that name for so long when he had no children. But God changes his name to Abraham, father of many. So large will this people be. So he's promising him a huge people that you can't even count. And then secondly, he promises him a place, Canaan. Now, as I said, we were originally not told this, but it becomes more specific as the promises are repeated. Uh, so, uh, Genesis 15, uh, 18 to 21. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. That's very specific, isn't it? It sort of gives you all the peoples that are in the land and where the boundaries of the land lie. And this place is spoken of in terms of abundance, the land of Canaan. So elsewhere in the Bible, it's described as a land flowing with milk and honey. Sort of the old world equivalent of chocolate when I explained this to to children uh, in an assembly a few weeks ago. But even during Abraham's time, it was described as, as something even more so on the back of your notice sheet, you'll see there Genesis 13, verse 10. It says, And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. That is before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Now there's other stuff going on with that verse, waiting for Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis, for example. But the land of Canaan there is being described like the Garden of Eden, the Garden of the Lord. It's almost as though the picture is being painted of this abundant land that's, that's like Eden. So it's not an exaggeration to say that God is promising Abraham something more, if you like. He's promising something amazing. The land that God has promised Abraham is like a new Eden. It's God's place. But as we'll see next time, the only issue is that there are already people living there. But even this will turn out to be a blessing. As they walk into this land where everything's already subdued. They've got fields, they've got houses. So God is giving them this land, this place. And the land for them is Canaan. 
<coughs> and then finally, the final promise is <coughs> God's rule and blessing. <coughs> God's rule and blessing. And the way we see him uh, do that rule is through covenant. Uh, his rule is expressed through his covenant. Uh, there's a sign for this one of his covenant. It's going to be circumcision uh, with Abraham. When God gives a covenant to Moses, it's uh, the Sabbath that's the sign. And a covenant is an arrangement between parties, like a, a sort of contract. Uh, it can be between a king and his subjects. It can be between a king and a conquered nation. Sometimes it was a mutual contract that you could just make with each other. Sometimes it was a unilateral contract. One person would just do it. So, for example, a king would dictate terms to his subjects, but both would be bound to keep them. Now, the covenant that God makes here with Abraham is unilateral. Only the sign, really, of the covenant is necessary, circumcision. Everything else is God. It explains that strange uh, ceremony in chapter 15. If you just have a glance at chapter 15, I won't read the whole account. But if you uh, look down, you'll see there's this weird sort of ceremony where uh, God walks through uh, animals that are cut in half uh, and makes promises as he walks through. And this is really a sign that God is, is promising to do this. So normally in a situation like that, two people would walk through together, uh, through these cut-up beasts. But here God walks through by himself. It would be like, so when we do a deal, don't we, we sort of shake hands on it, don't we? It would be God sort of shaking hands by himself, if you like. He, he's the only party to this, the only one who must keep it. And it's a little bit strange because these cut-up animals, really, this is... A sign basically saying, if, you, if I don't keep this, let me become like these animals, let me be cut in half. So the phrase in the Bible to make a covenant was to cut a covenant. Uh, that's probably due to this fact that they cut these animals in half. But this is God binding himself in the strongest possible terms to Abraham and his descendants. This is him binding himself to the promises that he's making. This is an all-powerful, all-faithful God Binding himself to keeping the promises that he's making. This really means this will come to pass. If God himself is, is promising to do this, they will happen. Not only has God said it, he's sort of signed it in blood as they chop these animals in half. This is God's rule being established through his covenant. But we also see that blessing is promised through this as well. Blessing through Abraham. Do you remember that from Genesis 12? Uh, those who bless Abraham uh, will be blessed. Those who curse Abraham are to be cursed. And we'll see that worked out in history uh, as we go to the Exodus uh, next week. But Abraham is, is like the gatekeeper to the blessing for the world. This will give him a great name indeed because he is the one through whom the blessing comes. Our God is the God of Abraham. That's how he's described through the Bible. God promises him more blessing as he promises him a great name. Now think of that in contrast to the Tower of Babel where they wanted to make a name for themselves. They couldn't do it, could they? But God here promises him a great name. God bestows it on him. God will make a name for Abraham. Abraham will become a byword for blessing. And he will mean blessing to others. And that includes the whole world. So again, look back at Genesis 12 uh, and verse 3. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonours you I will curse. And in you, 
All the families of the earth shall be blessed. Actually, this is involving the whole world. God's plan to include non-Jews and as his people doesn't start in the book of Acts as they go to the end of the earth. It starts right here in Genesis, even before the Jews existed as a people, even before they came into being. Abraham would be a blessing to all nations. In other words, the blessing that comes through Abraham will be as global as the curse that came through Adam. So do you see how Abraham is not just another character? This is not, as well, just about God blessing Abraham, or even just Abraham's physical descendants. Actually, this is about the whole world. Well, what's Abraham's response to all these promises? Well, Abraham's response is that he leaves. He goes where God sends him. He goes to the land of Canaan. He has faith. And someone once said that faith is spelled R-I-S-K. Faith is spelled R-I-S-K, for the slow spellers. It's a huge risk, isn't it, for Abraham and his family? He's got his whole family to take with him, his wife, his servants, all those things. He hasn't got children yet, but it's still a big commitment. What about his work? We don't know what Abraham did in Haran or in Ur, but he would have to up sticks and change jobs. What about the cost of travelling? How how much would it cost to travel across the Fertile Crescent at that time? Really, this teaches us the main thing about Abraham, that his response is that not only he leaves, but he believes. So do you remember in Genesis 15, verse 6? And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Abraham believed God. Now, he had some doubts. That's normal. He had hiccups like the rest of us. But his life was characterised by faith. And that's the chief characteristic of Abraham in the New Testament. That's why the New Testament talks about him so much. Now, James helpfully reminds us that this led to obedience as well. But faith was what characterised God because of the promises, uh, what characterised Abraham because of the promises that God had given him. And that was the response that God wanted. He wanted him to believe him. That's the right response to a promise, isn't it? So uh, if I say, I'm off out, and Caroline says to me, oh, can you get some milk while you're out? Well, I would hope that when I get back, she hasn't been to the shops and bought some milk and got it in the fridge. Because what would that say? It would really say that she doesn't believe my promise. Or what about on your wedding day? Could you imagine if you just got married and then the other person sort of follows you round the whole time just in case that you start flirting with someone at the wedding reception? That'd be very strange, wouldn't it? But it means really that they don't believe your promises that you've just made. The correct response to a promise is to believe it. If that person is trustworthy. That's when you believe a promise, isn't it? When the person is trustworthy. When we don't believe God's promises, what we're really saying is that we don't think that God is trustworthy. But God has staked his life on these promises. There is nothing more sure in the universe than God's promises. Spurgeon had a a checkbook uh, of faith. I don't know if you've come across it, but uh, imagine really the checkbook of faith is from the bank of promises, isn't it? That's what we believe in. And there's no surer investment. Gold will dissolve before the promises of God fail. Fort Knox will be the home of jackals before God goes back on his word. 
There is nothing more certain in the whole universe than the promises of God. God promising, uh, God keeping his promises is more certain than the sun coming up in the morning. It's more certain than the stars staying in the sky. There's nothing surer in the whole world than that God will keep his promises. So we must believe in God's promises. So what can we take from this? Well, God has bound himself to keep the promises to Abraham. And we are heirs of Abraham in Christ. We'll see how that works out as we go through. But God's made promises to us as well. And God is the ultimate promise keeper. And we need to respond in faith as Abraham did. What promises has God made? Well, we've sung some of them today, haven't we? I'll never forsake you. was one of the promises that God made. Um, he's made promises of forgiveness of sin, past, present and future. He's made his promises of eternal life with God forever, life in relationship with him. Promises of power over sin. Sin shall not reign in your life. So there is hope for progress in our spiritual lives. What should we do with these promises? Well, we should respond with faith. We should take God at his word. That's what Abraham did. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So it's always been this way. We're always to believe the promises of God. It's always been by faith that we're to respond to God. Unlike Abraham with us, faith is spelled R-I-S-K. It means stepping out in faith. That's the word we use, isn't it? Sometimes the risky thing like Abraham will be to go. Sometimes the risky thing will be to stay. Either way, we live as God tells us to live. We follow his lead and we take up our cross daily, however risky that might be. And it's not really a risk, is it? Because the promises of God are sure. If you're investigating Christianity this morning, if you're here as a visitor uh, looking into the Christian faith, faith is how you begin the Christian life. And it's also how you go on. Not with ceremonies and religiosity, not with trying harder and pulling your socks up, but by taking God at his word, by believing what he has said. Now, as far as the storyline goes, we're still waiting for the serpent crusher, aren't we, at this point? We haven't got there. Abraham is not him. But perhaps it will be connected with his seed, with his offspring that he'll have. The same word that's used seed there is the same word from Genesis 3.16, the promise of the serpent crusher. Perhaps the seed of Abraham will be the seed of the woman who will crush the serpent's head. Now, we really know that we're heading towards Christ, don't we? The one that we need to put our, our trust in. But before we get there, next time we're going to be looking at Abraham's descendants through time. We're going to go 400 years later, after Isaac, after Jacob, after Joseph. And he's amazing technical, a dream coat. We're not going to be in Canaan, but in Egypt, in slavery. And the Egyptians are going to learn just what it means for God to keep his promises to Abraham. Because they overlook the significance of this 400-year-old promise made to an OAP. Let's pray that we don't overlook uh, the significance of Abraham as we watch God bring about his kingdom here on earth uh, as it is in heaven. So let's pray that we would uh, understand those things. Let's come before God in prayer. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the story of Abraham. Father, thank you that he wasn't uh, just another man in, in many ways. Father, not because he was special, but Father, because you made special promises to him. 
And Father, thank you that we see the outworkings of those promises in the Lord Jesus. Father, thank you for him and all that he does for us, all that he has done for us by dying on the cross. Father, pray that we put our faith in him and the wonderful promises that he has made. And Father, pray that our lives will be characterised by that faith, that we might take risks, Father, not because we enjoy the excitement, Father, but because we know that you are trustworthy. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.